Kubernetes community. Welcome back to the Pod Control Podcast. We are excited to be back for another week. Kyler, how are you, how are you doing this week? Not, not too bad. Not too bad. So, you know, obviously there's been, uh, you know, we talked last week, there's been a lot going on in the industry. Um, you know, we as Red Hat employees just went through the, the CoreOS acquisition. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that we do a lot is we have a tendency sometimes to, to always see things from, from like the perspective that you live in, your, your perspective, whether it's as a vendor or a contributor or an operator or whatever it is. And one of the things that we've seen in, in getting to know the CoreOS team better is, you know, they obviously had a, a perspective on how to take a product to market, how to implement things. Red Hat had a perspective. And it kind of, in our mind, it kicked off this idea that like, hey, we should, we should talk about kind of myths and misperceptions that, that are maybe floating around in the Kubernetes community, not necessarily from a, a Red Hat perspective or CoreOS perspective, but, but you and I see a lot of things that, that get said, whether they're said by a vendor or an analyst or a customer. Um, and we thought it would be good to, to make a show or we end, this may end up becoming two shows if it runs long, um, but just kind of like, what are some of the myths and misperceptions and then try and you know, correct them or at least get some, you know, some uh, other perspectives out there? Yeah, I think uh, I think what crystallized this for me with the you know in relating to the acquisition was not just you know kind of those those perspectives we picked up, but reading a lot of coverage of it, and then you see you know analysts take on not even so much specifically the acquisition, but just the community as a whole, and then you're know, like, well, and then you're like, wow, that's that's kind of. It's kind of weird that they're saying that because that, that's not exactly true or, right. you know, the Kubernetes doesn't work that way or something. So then it's, you know, you start because it was a, a whole flurry of articles kind of analyzing the acquisition. That's kind of really brought to a head for me. Yeah. So I thought what we would do is and we're going to break this down into probably like three or four buckets, maybe four or five buckets um, and just kind of walk through what we see are some of the most common either myths or misperceptions. Maybe they're just, um, you know, something that comes at it from a very different angle than the, the Kubernetes community is and, uh, and try and just talk through them and, and give some perspective on, on why we, you know, think they might be, they might be off or, um, you know, they're, they're just different from what the, the Kubernetes community has. So why don't we start with uh, a bunch that are kind of in the bucket, uh, that I'm, I'm kind of labeling apps or applications. Um, the first one I had on the list is, Sometimes people want to say that, that Kubernetes is a platform or is the platform. Where, where do you see that kind of getting misconstrued sometimes? Um, well, I feel like people have its natural human tendency to like try and take new things and and apply stuff you know to it to kind of understand it better. Like, okay, this is, this is like this other thing. Um, so I think uh, – you know, the idea that like, well, people are using Kubernetes a lot for applications. It's like, OK, this is so this is like a platform. This is like platform as a service or this is similar to uh, usually the, mo the two most common ones are, are, you know, compared to platforms or uh, like virtualization. Like so this is sort of like VMs. And, and I think that's what that's what, you know, kind of gets people a little sideways uh, once they start digging into it further. Right. Right. And I, and I think the other myth sometimes is. Um, you know, Kubernetes has obviously evolved quite a bit from, from where it got started. So if you, you know, if you ever go back a, a couple of years and you listen to a Kelsey Hightower interview, he'll say, you know, Kube is just, um, it's just an API and it's a scheduler. And, you know, if that's the case, you go, wow, it really, you know, it's a very limited thing. Well, now it's, it's inclusive of a lot of different things. It allows you to, you know, build your own schedulers. It's, it's got, you know, plugins for, for different components. Um, you know, there's some best practices about how to plug in CI and CD, but, you know, I think it comes back to when you, when you, you even listen to some of the people that were the originators of it, whether it's a, you know, Brendan Burns or Kelsey or, uh, you know, any of those kind of folk, you know, Gabe Monroy, who was, who was on the show a while ago and was at Deus, 
you know, their thing is always Kubernetes is not sort of the top of the stack. It's still a core component of something bigger, of some bigger platform, whether that platform is, you know, doing containerized apps, uh, you know, eventually does serverless or, you know, it's doing big data. I think if you really talk to the core people, their their belief is still it's a core engine of a much bigger platform. And the, the bigger platform is the thing that um, if you're thinking about a platform, regardless if it's a vendor driven or, or homegrown, um, you know, be careful thinking that Kubernetes does everything. Uh, because there's still a lot that you have to put around it in order to make it functional. Yeah, and I, I think you see that play out in the community, you know, as versioning goes by and stuff where some new need comes out and it's a, does this belong in Kube or is this something that goes plugs into it, goes on top of it? Um, and you see those kind of decisions hash out. And I think that makes it pretty straightforward. Whereas if you're working with a platform, uh, like even we do with, with OpenShift or, or someone, you know, say Cloud Foundry or, or any of the other, where it's like, oh, people need this functionality. Well, then it goes in the platform, right? Um, and I think that's the difference here where you say like, oh, a lot of people using Kube need this, you know, need this specific network capabilities. Like, well, does that belong in Kube or is that, you know, something we just need to increase the the CNI API to be able to handle that? Yeah. I think that makes it pretty clear that it's not a, a platform by itself. Yeah, the other thing that I think sometimes happens is, um, you know, and this isn't really a knock on, on say, like the CNCF, but, um, you know, people make this association where they go, okay, Kubernetes is is under under the governance of the CNCF, and then they'll see like a you know a diagram, a stack diagram, like the land, like the uh, container native landscape diagram from the CNCF, and they'll see or they'll see other projects, and they'll go, oh, okay, all of those things are the platform. Like you you know you have to have this and this and this, and that's the platform. And, and again, I think the way to think about this is these are composable pieces um, that if put together in the right way and you can pick and choose them, you can build a platform, but, but any one of the components themselves are still, you know, a composable building block of something bigger. Yeah. And I think that's maybe even, you know, goes back to kind of the, the open stack mindset where people say, well, go oh, there's a foundation, there's a bunch of projects in it. So apparently together, these must be the whole big platform thing together where, you know, in this case, it's CNCF is more more like the Apache Foundation than the OpenStack Foundation. Right, right. Where it's a, hey, they're, they're housed under there, but that they don't necessarily go, have to go together. So, yeah, if you want to deploy your, your Kubernetes using, you know, a, a commercial proprietary network plugin or storage plugin, like, go nuts. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. What's next on your list? Um, containers are only for microservices. Right. Uh, this one, I, I think, is, you know, the, the kind of... When you're when everything's a, uh, a hammer, all you you know when when everything's a nail, um, you know all you have is a hammer. Well, I think that's what you know kind of the mindset when you have this. The, everything's being rewritten from scratch. Everything's microservices, so containers. Um, you know this is this is what they go. We're gonna we're gonna do service meshes and 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 build all these microservice based frame frameworks into it, and and this is what it looks like. We're gonna throw out all our old, old code, and and this is how it's gonna work. And all the old stuff's just gonna stay where it's running today. And it's kind of that mindset of well, that stuff will eventually just go away as we build the new stuff. But if you've been in IT longer than you know a couple of years, you know that the old stuff n- never goes away. Right. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think we. I think there's a lot of reasons why this narrative or this, uh, yeah, this narrative kind of caught hold, right? We, we have a tendency to, in, in technology to, to always think that the new thing kills the old thing. And so, you know, the, the idea that new applications are going to replace old applications was obviously a narrative. Uh, containers were going to replace VMs was a narrative. Uh, you know, it, 
it, it worked out well in the sort of tech media world where everything has to either, you know, succeed or die and the old, you know, kills the old thing. And um, I think the thing to remember, and then the other thing we had was, you know, we would have these PaaS platforms that were kind of language specific, right? Like it only supported .NET or it only supported like certain elements of Java or something. I think the reality that is out there, and again, you know, there's, there's lots of, of good customer studies that prove this out. Um, you know, you, it's, it supports lots of languages, which means it'll support modern stuff like node and go, but it also, you can put Java applications in there. You can run J2E, you know, JEE applications in there. Um, you know, we see people porting middleware over to these types of things. So I, I think that one is, is beginning to go away, but I still, when I go out and talk at events and stuff, it, it's one of those things that people are still shocked that, uh, you know, you could take an existing application, um, and whether it's either not changed at all or change with minor changes and put it in a container and run it. And, and then you, sometimes you have to remind them that like, Hey, if it ran on Linux before, it's probably going to run pretty well as a container as well. You're just now getting better isolation, better package management, better dependency management. Yeah, I mean, the fact that if, the fact that you can run an Oracle database in a container. So if you can run right. that in a container, why can't you run almost anything else? Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, okay. So the next one I had on my list was, and, and, I, and I, I don't see this so much uh, in the press as a misunderstanding or from analysts as a misunderstanding. But I see it sometimes when I'm like at events, if I'm, if I'm in a, you know, working in the booth at a trade show or something and you're talking to people and they'll go and, you know, I'll ask them, hey, you know, do you run microservices? And they'll say, well, you know, we're trying to isolate our pieces of our code. We're trying to isolate kind of our domain specific things. But, but that thing we've isolated is not small. It's, you know, it's, it's decent in size. And so I think there's this misperception that microservices are always micro right there, you know, they're only 50 lines or they're only a hundred lines of code. But I, I think that's a, a misperception that a lot of times developers feel like, Oh, I can't implement this, this important thing in a really small amount of code. So I, I microservices aren't for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the, you know, you see that now, I think it was actually helping now is sort of the serverless trend where, you know, literally they can't run that long to begin with. So your serverless functions, they're, they're individual functions, you know, you know, if you if you have a a, a a CRUD app, right? Um, it can you think for in serverless like well, that's four different four different functions. Um, you know, create, read, update, delete are each its own function. Whereas in microservice, that may not be. You may you know you may have a microservice that runs your user management as a whole. It creates users. It you know does uh, authentication, all that type of stuff. Can all be in one you know, quote, microservice, the, the micro is just the, you know, it's it's pieces of the original monolith kind of from the design. So instead of that just being a subset, if if it if there's any key thing there, right, is if there's value for that to be developed individually from a code perspective, like, hey, we can be getting a lot more things done. We just can't be, you know, uh, you know, putting our code commits in because, you know, the, the bigger piece of the app moves slower. Right. We can split that out. So, you know, that, yeah, that, that quote microservice could be, could be gigs and gigs of uh, code. Right. Yeah. I mean, it could be simply separating a, a domain function, right? It's, it's, this is the thing that is our product catalog. This is the thing that is our authentication and, and login. This is the thing that, you know, we call out to, to make payments or to settle accounts or like those things you could think about them as distinct functions. And I think that's, if you really get back to the microservices people, the people that, you know, the, the thought works kind of folks and, and, and others, like that's what they try and get to the, you know, making it smaller is, is a nice byproduct of it, but it's sort of not a mandatory uh, kind of first principle, if you will. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the the big piece of it. There is just the the breaking it into components than it is specifically the size. You know, because if your whole app was a terabyte, then comparatively, you know, a gig is pretty small. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, as we were making our list, um, you know, we, we had you know containers are are only for microservices, which sort of implies that. Uh, you know, containers are only for, for stateless applications because people tend to associate those two things. Um, one of the sort of misconceptions I'm now seeing, or, you know, maybe it's a, I don't know, I don't really know where it necessarily is coming from is now we're starting to see uh, some, some people out there saying, well, you know, containers is really only for sort of stateful applications, which is, you know, kind of a, a flip side of things. But like, where does that come from? The, the idea that, you know, containers is only for a certain kind of applications. Uh <laughs> In my in my personal opinion, I think it comes from you know we have the one end of the tech um, kind of hype spectrum, which is the new thing killed the old thing. So all this stuff we're talking about now, containers, and everything, it's already dead. Serverless has replaced it all. Uh, everything else is dead. Everything serverless, right? That's that's the one end of the spectrum. The the new thing always replaces all the old stuff. Um, the other piece I, I'd call, uh, which is, is sort of like tech t- ultimate tech tolerance, where it's like everything will stay forever and everything has its place. Mm-hmm. You know, even though if there's tons of overlaps, so we'll be like, well, so then the problem is if you're like, well, there's, there's containers, there's VMs, there's PaaS, there's serverless. And it's like, well, they're all, they all have a use case. You know, the, you always hear the, the kind of, I think, cop out the toolbox. Well, it's like, well, the right tool in the toolbox, there's all these different tools. But you know, then sometimes you open up that toolbox. It's like, well, this screwdriver, you have like 15 different size flathead screwdrivers like well do you really need them all um and i think that's where this comes in here is like well then you're trying to decide what you know like draw your little lines to be able to understand it so like okay well if i'm doing i'm doing microservices and paths and they've been telling me that you know these are stateless you know cloud native apps are stateless and 12 factor and all that good stuff and then well i do need to run some stateful stuff like because i'm going to store the data well that makes sense so containers and kubernetes are for stateful stuff and then the stateless stuff goes on here is sort of a uh, split in the baby type of approach of instead of saying like well this can do both so maybe in this case this does replace that right right yeah and i and i, and I can understand it i mean sometimes you know historically you could have made that argument right so you know there was a time in in the early days of kubernetes uh for example when you know there was there was a lot of debate of you know kubernetes versus say mesosphere and and you look at the history the lineage of say Mes- mesos or you know mesos marathon not so much mesosphere but mesos and marathon and and its lineage was very much you know big data so you know it it had this idea that you're going to have sort of a second level scheduler that's going to be very uh, intelligent and optimized for you know hadoop and apache you know apache spark or yarn or or any of those specific things and so there was a time when you could make an argument like well you know kubernetes is good for a lot of things but maybe it's not great for you know say like big data at the time and and i think what we've seen with kubernetes um you know, is the storage integration has gotten better, uh, things like stateful sets, the concept of sort of schedulers that align to, to multiple types of tasks, whether they're batch jobs, long running jobs, stateful jobs, and so forth. Like a lot of those things that used to be inhibitors to, to Kubernetes are, have kind of gone away, or at least they're there's a distinctive track now, uh, technology path that says that's really no longer going to be uh, a limitation, right? And, and we've seen things like, you know, some of the serverless functions as a service starting to come to Kubernetes. So, um, you know, I, I feel like that myth that you've got to have, 
you know, a separate platform or a distinctly separate operational model uh, for some set of applications has gotten really, really small versus what you can run on top of Kubernetes and then hence, you know, have one model of doing operations. Yeah, and I think a piece of it goes to the story we talked about last episode where sometimes if if people, you know, a piece of it is they don't understand kind of how this stuff works under the covers. Mm-hmm. And then that way it's, it's easier to say like, oh, these things all lay next to each other. So it's like, oh, serverless and Kubernetes and you know, it's a totally different. You're like, well, serverless, yes, it packaged up the code and then it runs it in containers. It just sort of the operational model and, and kind of, you know, scale out is, is a different concept, but it's underneath it's spinning up container and a lot of the service platforms are using kubernetes underneath kind of thing and i think that's a similar thing where it's like if you think about something like OpenShift, you if, if you look at it from a if you're using all the sort of paz type tools in it like oh well it's it's a paz and then you know it's like well yeah but then it's kubernetes under the cover so that's where it's the like well i can you know it doesn't really matter what kind of app but people just see kind of the the top surface and not understanding what's underneath it i think then it's hey we have to put it into these different buckets like what what platform do we use for what type of app Right, right, right. And, you know, and I think if we think about it in the bigger sense of things, like, you know, a lot of the, the technology products out there are chasing, you know, what I can do in the, in the big, you know, in the big public cloud providers. And you, you look at that and you go, they, you know, they build an operational model. They build a core platform that delivers lots and lots of different types of services. Um, and, you know, what, what goes on under the covers, you don't necessarily have to know about, but, you know, you, you want to build, consistent operational models and give your developers flexibility. And if you can find that balance, um, that's a, that's a pretty sweet spot in Nirvana because you, you've, you've optimized around developer productivity, but you've also optimized around cost and so forth. So, um, yeah, that, that, you know, the fact that, that we're hearing, Hey, it's only for certain things as opposed to it can do much of broader things. I think, um, we're seeing play out more and more in the marketplaces as being much more of a myth than being a, a limitation. Hey, listen, um, I think we're going to wrap it up for sort of this, what we'll call part one. We'll do, we'll do part two in a second show, and we're going to focus on, you know, th- that one was very much kind of uh, application-centric, um, you know, types of applications you can run on the platform and so forth. And, and part two that we're going to we'll put out next week um, will be much more around operations, uh, you know, some, some of the multi-cloud stuff, some architecture stuff around Kubernetes that we're seeing some interesting, weird kind of statements about stuff. And we'll talk also about, you know, kind of, open source in the broader community and, and how people should think about, okay, how do I, how do I view the health of, health of open source? How do I view the health of the community? So we'll put that in part two. So this one doesn't, doesn't run too long. So Tyler, with that, I think we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, folks, thanks for listening this week. And uh, we will talk to you next week with part two. Mm-hmm.